Good morning. We will be reading from Matthew, the 27th chapter, verses 32 through 44. Matthew 27, verses 32 through 44. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry Jesus' cross. And when they had came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You, who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Thank you, Kevin. Let's pray. Father, the, just the title of this message alone is um, a bit overwhelming. To talk about the crucifixion of Jesus is uh, a tall order. And so I pray that you would um, help us to understand what the cross is all about, what it means, and then to know how we ought to live. Help us to see both the beauty, the horror, and the transformation of it, and then to know what it means for our lives personally. Oh God, would you help us today? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Every religion, um, social movement, or frankly even nation, has particular symbols that they use to capture their ideology, their philosophy, or kind of the foundations that define it. A couple examples. Um, Buddhism uses a lotus flower to communicate how both death and life and beauty and chaos all circle around and come from um, a concentric circle, um, if you will, this cycle of birth and death. Modern Judaism uses a star of David, two equilateral triangles to communicate God's eternal covenant with David. Islam uses a moon and star, a crescent, to depict both a phase of a moon and also was borrowed from the Ottoman Empire. The Soviet Union used a famous hammer and sickle to represent the intersection of both industry and agriculture in the midst of their social movement and nation, and also famously, or rather infamously, the swastika, which was used for generations prior to the Nazis, 
was meant to symbolize creativity and prosperity. So with every symbol, there is power and meaning because the symbol represents something behind it. So a symbol is powerful because it's a window, a window to a larger message, a a window to something that has more and significant meaning. Of course, you know that the precious and revered symbol of Christianity is the cross. It, like the other symbols, is loaded with significance, loaded with impact, and loaded with meaning. But what makes it different from the other symbols is the simple fact that the cross, by definition, was not an attractive symbol. In fact, it was a symbol of terrifying judgment. It was a symbol of torture. It was a symbol of oppression, imperial oppression. It was government terrorism. It was meant to strike fear in the hearts of people. Therefore, it's no wonder that the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23 that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to the Gentiles. The Gentiles look at the cross and they're like, you crazy people exalt in an object of torture. And for the Jews, Paul says it's a stumbling block because it's a sign of God's judgment. So the cross is at first an natural glance, an offensive and foolish symbol. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, reflects on what must have been the first century mindset as it relates to the cross. He writes this, Who or how could any sane person worship as a god, a dead man, who has been justly condemned as a criminal and subjected to the most humiliating form of execution? The combination of death, crime, and shame put him beyond the pale of respect, let alone worship. So, my aim this week and next is to walk you through the crucifixion and the death of Jesus to show you how the cross, which was once a symbol of defeat and shame, became a symbol of fulfillment and salvation. I want you to marvel at the fact that we hang a cross in our sanctuary. That that this, this emblem of suffering, this emblem of shame, this, this, this symbol of defeat becomes a symbol of fulfillment and salvation such that we sing about the cross now. And I would suggest to you that kind of turn from a symbol of defeat and shame to a symbol of fulfillment and salvation is something that only God could do. And for those of you who know Christ as your Savior, it makes complete sense because that's what he did to you. He takes defeat and shame and flips it and calls you his adopted child. So in order to do this, today we're going to look at Matthew 27, uh, this narrative of the crucifixion of Jesus, and then connect it to both the Old and the New Testaments. So first, the cross as a symbol of defeat. In our text, to give you a setting, it's 9 o'clock on Friday morning. This is Good Friday. Jesus has already been betrayed by Judas, unjustly charged by the religious leaders, brought before Pilate. He's been exchanged for a criminal Barabbas. He's been savagely flogged and mercilessly mocked by the Roman soldiers. And since crucifixion was as much about making a point as it was about killing a criminal, the condemned person was required to carry their cross beam of their cross through the city, from the praetorium to the outskirts of the city where the crucifixion would happen. 
As you can imagine, people would stop what they were doing, they'd line the streets, and they'd watch as the condemned men made their way out of the city. Think of it like a train wreck or an accident. People would stop, watch, look, and tremble. Jesus, who's been up all night, been mercilessly beaten, is not able to carry his cross the entire distance. And so when it is clear to the soldiers that Jesus cannot bear his own cross, they enlist a man named Simon from Cyrene to complete the journey. Cyrene is located, kind of ironically, in modern-day Libya on the Mediterranean coast. It was an old Greek settlement, and Simon is likely a pilgrim who happens to be in the city for the festival of Passover. Jesus is led then, with Simon carrying his cross, to the place called Golgotha. Verse 33 tells us, And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull... That place of a skull either refers to the fact that many people died there or it may have been that the nature of the land, the the topography, somehow looked like a skull and Jesus is led to this place, this skull place where he will be executed. Interestingly, the Latin word for skull is the word calvaria from which we get the English word calvary. So every time you say the word Calvary, or every time you sing about Calvary, you're singing about a skull. The exact location of Golgotha is not known, but it must have been somewhere along a high traffic area because the intention in crucifixion was not only to execute somebody, but it was to do so in a very public manner. You see, the end game here, friends, is not just death. No, no. The end game is humiliation, death, and terror. Crucifixion was meant to communicate a message to people. Don't mess with Rome. Crucifixion was one of the cruelest means of execution that has ever been devised. It was probably invented by barbarians on the edge of the known world and then incorporated and then improved by the Greeks and Romans. Central to its cruelty was the fact that crucifixion delayed death, allowing for the victim to suffer, sometimes over days with great agony. The the person's hands were tied or nailed to the horizontal beam on a cross, and then a large spike was driven through the feet as they were placed on top of each other and then driven through the joint, through the heel, into the wood. From this position, breathing was incredibly difficult and was only accomplished by pushing up on the spike in order to gain a breath. Suffering was immense, but death did not come quickly and it often took more than a day for the crucified person to die. However, the goal was not just to kill someone. The goal wasn't just execution. Crucifixion was essentially a political tool meant to terrorize people. So therefore, the execution was not only painful and prolonged, it was public and it was also humiliating. The prisoner was stripped absolutely naked, was hung in a high traffic area for all to see. The Romans used this frequently with the Jews as a means to keep them oppressed. In fact, in 4 BC, the Roman general Verus crucified 2,000 Jews. And in the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD... The Roman, uh, the Roman general 
Titus used crucifixion to terrorize the people inside the besieged city of Jerusalem. So if somebody fled the city and tried to be a deserter, they immediately crucified them. And Josephus tells us that there were so many crosses that lined the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem that the Romans ran out of space and wood for the number of people they had crucified. So at the end of the day, crucifixion was all about intimidation. It was designed to send people a message. And the message is, you are defeated. Additionally, the Jews viewed crucifixion as a sign of God's curse. Deuteronomy 21-23 says that whoever is hanged on a tree is cursed by God. And so for them, it's not only a political tool that's used to oppress them, but it actually communicates that this person has been therefore then cursed by God. And so what you see in the crucifixion is this intersection of both governmental terrorism and religious cursing that comes from God. And therefore, it's, a, it's, a, it's an emblem of spiritual and political devastation. The cross would have been a horrendous symbol. It means that you're cursed by God and that somebody has the authority and the power to push you into submission. So it's no wonder that it wasn't until the second century, 200 years after Christ's birth, that the cross becomes the preferred symbol of the Christian faith. Prior to that, nobody wanted to use it. They used the fish, they used Cairo, two Greek letters. 200 years until the cross became the acceptable symbol of the Christian faith. And what I want you to see here is to understand the sense of horror and the sense of just utter disgust that this particular symbol had with people. So it's a symbol of defeat. Secondly, it is a symbol of shame. Central to the horror of the crucifixion was not only the physical torture and the death that came with it, but also was the mockery and the shame. So it was as undignified as it was disgusting. The abuse was not only physical. Verse 34 tells us that the soldiers offered Jesus wine mixed with gall. It says they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Now, some people think that this was a a drink offered to victims of crucifixion in order to somehow dull their pain. The problem is, is that Roman soldiers were not known for their kindness. In fact, their aim was to increase pain and increase the mockery, not to diminish it in any way. So, so therefore, it seems that what's really happening here is this, that gall and myrrh created a very bitter taste. And it seems likely that the Roman soldiers offered Jesus something to drink in the appearance of somehow helping him, only to trick him into drinking something that would make him more thirsty. So this drink was not designed to diminish his pain or to quench his thirst. It was rather offered to him as a trick to make his misery worse and for them to mock him. This is the beginning of the shame of the cross. The soldiers who are charged with guarding the crucifixion site then begin to divide up Jesus' garments by casting lots. They apparently viewed his clothing as either a souvenir or perhaps some sort of booty that they would then take home. Above the head of most criminals, the Romans would place the charge, which was often written on a white tablet with red or black letters, and the charge of Jesus, according against Jesus, according to John 19.20, was written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And according to our text, it, it reads as follows, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. 
Now get this, you have a cross, you have Jesus hanging there completely naked, you have the soldiers who are mocking him, and above his head in three different languages, it says, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So those people came in this busy thoroughfare and they made their way into the city of Jerusalem, everyone who would walk by would see, this is what Rome does to your king, and just to be sure that everybody knows that we're in charge and we crucify your kings, we're going to put it in three different languages. This is the king of the Jews. This is terrible. Matthew includes it because of the important irony that no doubt you don't miss. Jesus, after all, really is the king of the Jews. And remember, this is the message from the book of Matthew. Matthew's aim is to show you through his narrative of Jesus' life, not only the works of Jesus, the actions of Jesus, but the death of Jesus, so that you can see that he really was the Messiah, the one who's come to take the the sins of the world. He's come to, to, to pay atonement for sins of those who would believe in him. And so what Matthew wants you to see is, yes, this is the King of the Jews. Jesus really is the Messiah. But there's more. Notice where this king is located. In verse 38, it tells us that he's crucified between two criminals. Between two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. Or, I think better, translated as insurrectionists. They're rebels. So, get this. Here's Jesus, completely stripped naked, with his charge over the top of his head. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews, and he is hanging between two rebels. He's on a cursed cross hanging between two insurrectionists. Jesus is in the middle of insurrectionist people, and he's being killed. Could Jesus look any more like a failure than this? It appears as though the religious rulers have won, that Rome is making a point, and that Jesus is clearly cursed by God. He's in the middle of two insurrectionists with Rome saying, this is your king, and what we do to you people, we crucify them and you. This is terrible. But it gets even worse. While Jesus is hanging on the cross, three different groups of people mock him, they tempt him, and they shame him. You see, they, they see him in his weakness hanging there on the cross, and they use it to their advantage. They, they in their sinfulness, taunt him. The first group is found in verses 39 to 40. Because the crucifixion happened in a very public place, the text tells us that while people were walking by, they derided him. Interestingly, that Greek word is the Greek word blasphemo. And and they, they hurled insults at him. And they wagged their heads at him as they're walking by. So imagine they're going to the city of Jerusalem with their children and they see these three men being crucified. And one of them is Jesus. And above him it says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And as they walk by him, they say things like, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and then in a frightening similarity to Matthew chapter 4 where the devil says these exact words if you are the son of God come down from the cross they are calling into question what Jesus says about himself they're calling into question his power further they are using the very words that Satan used to tempt Jesus in the desert they are challenging Jesus to prove who he is by using his power for himself 
But what they fail to realize is the very essence of their temple, is the heart of, of, of their temptation, is the, is the heart of the devil, and this yearning for Jesus to prove who he is, and in so doing, completely annihilate God's plan. For if he had used his power in that moment to save himself, he would never be able to save you and me. The second group is the religious rulers. Verse 41 tells us that the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders were there. They've come to the crucifixion, which is really a remarkable moment. Chief priests showing up at a crucifixion, that's rather rare. It'd be like the President of the United States and his cabinet attending the execution of Timothy McVeigh in 2001. It would just be like, this is this personal? But here they are. And, and notice what they say. They begin, it seems, walking around the crowd and saying things like, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross. And we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. You can just how vile and straight from the pit of hell these sort of comments are. But this is the son of God. And they say these things. They take who he is and what he has done and they throw it into his face. They mock his power to save people, saying that he he can't save people because he can't save himself. Little do they know that by not saving himself, he, he is saving people. Then the religious rulers have the audacity to say that, that if, if he had come down from the cross, then they will believe in him. In other words, they have the gall to excuse their unbelief by putting it on Jesus. They say, if you will just prove that you're Son of God, come off the cross right now, and then we'll believe in you. And if he had done that, they would have neither believed in him, nor would he have had the ability to save people. They are speaking satanic words. And then their cruelty just goes beyond the pale. They suggest that he cannot be God's son because of what is happening to him. They they appeal for God's deliverance. And when God doesn't deliver him, they say it must be God doesn't desire him. In other words, they are saying about Christ that he is powerless and he is worthless to God. And they are saying that their failure to believe in him is his fault. You're powerless, you're worthless, and if you would just prove it, then we would believe in you. And everyone in the text knows that is so not true. What arrogance. What cruelty. What shame he endures. And it continues. It's a shame-fest pile on through crowds, the religious rulers, and then even the crucified criminals, the insurrectionists on his right and left begin mocking him. Verse 44 brings the paragraph to an end when it says, the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. It seems kind of odd that these two men, while they're being crucified themselves, revile Jesus. It seems as though they would have some sort of camaraderie together. But no, they, they join in the chorus, probably because they are angered with people like Jesus, who criticize the religious and political establishment, but are not willing to join the revolutionary movement. And now they hang, having given their lives, and this rabbi has the audacity to somehow challenge Rome through his words, but he won't join the movement, so they mock him and ridicule him and say things like are you not the christ then save yourself and us in other words use your religion and do what we need to do luke 
23 tells us that one of the criminals famously said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He must have switched or something in the middle of that conversation. But Matthew doesn't record any of that. And there's a reason. Because he wants you to see the extent of Jesus' mockery. Oh, I pray that you would feel the weight of this, that Jesus is hanging naked on an instrument of Death and cruelty and oppression and God's curse. He's mocked by people as they walk by. He's assailed by the religious rulers. He's upbraided by those who are dying with him. He is all alone. He is shamed and scorned from every direction. He hangs between heaven and earth, a man cursed by men and by God. And from every direction in his life, he is assailed. And there he hangs between God and mankind on this this symbol of defeat and this symbol of shame. It's no wonder that the church looked at the cross and said, really, we can't use this for almost 200 years. So Matthew's gospel is reaching a crescendo here. This is the moment that has prompted him to write his gospel from the very beginning. He wants you as the reader to know more than just the suffering and the death of Jesus. What he wants you to know is this, that all of this is happening in the context of a fulfillment of God's plan and his will. Hear me, this event, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, did not happen by accident. In fact, the Old Testament is all over this story. And so the cross, while a symbol of defeat and shame, is also a symbol at the same time of fulfillment. Let me give you some examples. Jesus looked back into the Old Testament, saw the story of Moses. When people were bitten by snakes, Moses put a snake on a pole. It's the same symbol that we use today for medicine. It's a snake on a pole. And Jesus said this, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In other words, Jesus looks back into the Old Testament and says, see how Moses lifted up that snake? That's me. I'm going to be lifted up. As well, there's all sorts of fulfillments running through this passage. For instance, Psalm 69, 21, about the wine mixed with gall. Listen to this. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Psalm 22, 18, about Jesus' garments being divvied up by the casting of lots. Listen, I count all my bones, they stare at me and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and my, for my clothing they cast lots. So every step of the way, Matthew wants you to know that, that yes, there's horrible things that are going on, but he also wants you to know that everything that's happening is in fulfillment of a much bigger, broader plan. Isaiah 53, Therefore I will divide him a portion with many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, listen, and was numbered with the transgressors. It's Isaiah, Isaiah 53. It should be no surprise that Jesus was crucified with criminals. And then in Psalm 22, 7 and 8, Jesus is mocked, fulfilling all who see me will mock me and make mouths at me and wag their heads. 
they will say, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So over and over, there's this fulfillment motif that keeps coming up in Matthew, and even in the death of Jesus that we'll look at next week, we'll see this again. See, Matthew loves this theme of fulfillment, and it comes so clearly through in this text, because Matthew wants you to know that it's horrible and as defeating as this cross looks, and as shameful as it is, it is all part of a plan that God is working out. And that is incredibly hopeful for those of you who come this morning and you have a mess in your life. And you look at what's going on and you have said in your mind and heart, how in the world can anything good come out of this? And to you, I would point you to the cross and tell you, be not deceived by what you see. God is able to use difficult and shameful and diabolical plans in order to work out beautiful, grace-giving, divine ends. In fact, Peter, 50 days after the death of Jesus, preached a phenomenal sermon at Pentecost where he undergirded his message in this theme of God's plan. Look at what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, here it comes, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, Peter says this, look, everything that was going on is you crucified him, but undergirding this was God's divine plan. This, this is this, this son who was delivered up according to the divine plan, the foreknowledge of God, and you crucified him. And just so you know, God raised him from the dead and the news flash was he's coming back. Now, if you were the man who cried, crucified him, even though the divine plan of God is working out, and you hear someone saying, and he's coming back, what are you going to say? They said, oh, what must we do to be safe? And the answer is repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. In other words, become his follower and repent from what you've done. Remarkably, the cross becomes a beautiful symbol. Listen, this cross becomes a beautiful symbol of God's ability to, to be God. Think about this. God is able to take the most horrific symbol known to the Jewish people during their lifetime and he uses it to communicate that his plans never fail. The people who are watching Jesus die have no idea that this horrible moment, including even the actions of Satan himself, are all working according to God's plan. What that means is that underneath the vile ground of Golgotha is a life-giving stream of divine providence. That God is fulfilling His Word even in this awful moment. So when you see the cross, not only see defeat, not only see shame, you have to see fulfillment. That God is right on His plan. Right exactly where He needs to be. Right where Christ needs to be. As awful and as diabolical as it is, God is working out His plan for the redemption of those who would believe in Him. Finally, the cross is also a symbol of salvation. So, 
it's not only about defeat and shame and fulfillment, but it speaks yet another word. It's the word of salvation. And this is the theme, this cross and salvation theme that drives so much of the New Testament. Particularly, it drives the heart of the Apostle Paul. In other words, the cross, friends, is central to everything. It is the symbol of salvation. It's, it's the essence of what we believe. It's the heart of the Christian faith, that the cross becomes the central reality. So the New Testament is filled with references to the cross or what it means for one to be crucified. Listen to Colossians 1, 19 and 20, talking about the fact that it's the cross that brings reconciliation. As Jesus hangs between heaven and earth, he reconciles God and mankind. He brings the two together. He hangs there, bearing the curse and the shame from every direction so that people can be brought back to a relationship with the Holy God. That's the essence of what the gospel is. It is that you are a sinner and you need reconciliation back to God. Your actions and attitudes, even who you are, have offended God and put you in a precarious position under his judgment. And it's only by Christ and receiving him that you're brought back to a right relationship with your creator. The guilt that you feel in your heart for what you do is a sign that there's a holy God who's righteous and you are in big trouble. And Christ is the means by which you're brought back together. Here's what Colossians 1 says. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell through him to reconcile to himself all things. He's reconciling them all, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So divine providence underneath all of this, the question that you have to wrestle with today is why are you here? Why this message? Why this day? There's no mistakes in life. God orchestrates this very day that on April 10th, 2011, you heard this message about this cross. The question is why? What is God trying to do? Perhaps it is that he's trying to reconcile you back to himself by helping you to see the beauty of the symbol that you know, but you never fully understood the extent or the breadth or the depth of what is represented by this glorious, horrific, but salvific symbol. The cross is the means of forgiveness means that Jesus took our sins out of the way. Listen to Colossians 2.13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, meaning everything you've ever done and will do, this he set aside, nailing it to his cross. Oh, that's glorious. He took it aside and he nailed it to the cross. The symbol of defeat, the symbol of shame. He took our sins and he nailed it to that cross. It was the cross that brought us near to God, thereby making us new people. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's where some of you are. But, here's the beautiful message, verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, here it comes, through the cross. 
Therefore, if it's the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, it means that church ministry, and particularly preaching, should make the cross central. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. So Paul's aim, and the aim of every church, should be that the cross is central, that the idea of Christ and Him crucified is the single most important message that we have. So I I have something to tell you, and that is that if you're visiting College Park Church, or if you're hanging out here, and, and, and you don't like to hear about Jesus and the cross, I've got news for you. This is not the church for you. Because at the end of the day, that's all we have. Everything we have intersects to the beauty and the reality of the cross. The reason that it must be central is not only because the cross is the means of salvation, it is even how you live after the cross. So once you understand this and you receive Christ, then it affects how you live. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ. That is an unbelievable thing to say. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It means that for the rest of your life, you live a crucified life. You've joined Jesus spiritually in his crucifixion. The effect of that, Romans 6 tells us, is that we don't have to serve sin anymore. Listen, for we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be... um, might be brought to nothing so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. So the beauty of the cross means when you see that symbol, that this thought ought to go through your mind, I don't have to serve sin anymore. That symbol means I am free. The devil and sin no longer holds me. I am a cross man. I am a cross woman. That by God's grace, I have embraced the beautiful reality of what it means for Jesus to have forgiven me of all my sins. I've been crucified with him. And the effect is that I am now dead to what sin and the devil want me to do. And therefore, what comes out of you now is a new thing called fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, loving kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Tracking with us? Even more though, the cross becomes the ground of everything and the only thing in which we could or ever should boast. In other words, the only thing worthy of our confidence, our joy, and our praise is in effect Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 6.14. I love this because it uses both the word cross and the word crucified in the exact same verse. Far be it from me to boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a, what a statement. I'm not going to boast in anything. You know why? Because there's nothing else. There's nothing. I'm a sinner. God saved me. And my only hope is the cross of Christ. So it would be foolish to boast in anything besides the cross of Christ. And then he says, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So why only boast in the cross? Hmm. The answer, frankly, friends, is relatively simple because there is nothing greater than what happened on it. Nothing. So what happens is in the cross of Christ, we have this symbol 
of defeat and shame, and God gloriously transforms it into a symbol of fulfillment and a symbol of salvation. So yeah, Jesus hangs on this emblem of suffering and defeat. He hangs between heaven and earth, cursed by every person in every direction. But the beauty of this cross is although Jesus hangs there between heaven and earth, and he's cursed by everyone there, the Bible says that God has the last word. God always has the last word. And the cross says God has the final word on his son. And this is why, beloved, that we sing songs like, On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross. Why? Where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Why do we love the cross? Why do we sing about this emblem of suffering and shame? Why do we glory in the cross? Why do we marvel at what God did in the cross? Because the cross of Jesus Christ shows us that at the end of the day, it is God who has the last word on sin, on the devil, and on your heart. He makes you a new creature, a new person, and it's only because of this emblem called the cross that that is even a possibility or a reality. This horrid symbol becomes a symbol of promise, fulfillment, Salvation and hope because God Almighty has the last word. O risen Christ, O crucified Christ, we come. And I pray that in this moment now, that you would speak. This is not by coincidence, it's by divine design that we are all here today. And I pray that you would use this symbol, this horrific emblem, as a powerful wake-up call for all of us. Today, friends, in our service, we've talked about silence. And just before we release you, could I just invite you to, just to talk to the Lord about what's on your heart right now about the cross? For some of you, that may be realizing that today is a major, major intersection for you and God. And today you've heard the truth of what the Bible says about your sin and your need to come to Christ. And maybe today would be a day of conversion, a day of faith, a day of repentance. For others of you, maybe just to think about what it means that you don't have to serve sin anymore, man. And last night what happened, or Friday night, or this week what happened, you didn't have to do that. You chose to. You've been set free from it. And the cross shows you that. Or maybe in the midst of just tough, hard stuff, you wonder how in the world can any good come out of this and you just need to go back to the cross and be reminded that even this, even this, God can use. Oh God, would you, would you use these final moments to seal important, eternal truths in our hearts to give us hope to fill us with awe, and to drive us deeper into this relationship of what it means to be your follower. And as we close, if there's a need in your life today that you just feel this pressing burden where God by his Spirit's bringing conviction or some sort of, of, of eye-opening moment, we have some folks 
up here already at the front who would love to be able to pray with you afterwards. And they're here to be able to love you, pray for you, ask for God's help. So God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the spirit. We thank you for the power that is in this beautiful symbol. And we pray this in the name of our crucified king who set us free from the pangs of sin and death. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming today.